This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's Unsupervised Learning. Thanks for listening to the ungated version of the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. If you want to read some essays on some of these topics, please check out razib.substack.com. Again, that's razib.substack.com. Thank you. Hey, everybody. This is Razib with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. And I am here today with Nicola Buskirk, who is with LSR Books. And LSR Books also has a Substack, and I'll put the links there for you guys. And we're going to be talking about books, Tolkien, and uh, other assorted things today. Uh, Nicola, so, you know, I've known you for a little while, just like I've known a lot of people, by the way, who I do podcasts with. I think uh, some of you know that, so not a big surprise. And um, I know um, that uh, you have a fascination or a love of Tolkien. And so LSR... um, Tell the uh, the less less nerdy listeners out there who LSR is. Okay, I mean, I can I can start. Do you want me to start by telling you what the the company does? My like my company does, or what the yeah? If you want to start, if you want to start that way, you can you can start that way. All We're right, gonna get to I that. Think, We're gonna get to that. Yeah, there's just a there's a connection there, like why it's why okay, the company is called okay. LSR. Um, so what the company does is it is like a book publisher uh, that the goal is basically putting out out-of-print books and works like back into print um, that have been forgotten. Like it's kind of what inspired it was I just went down enough internet rabbit holes where I would run into books, documents, what have you, that were impossible to get my hands on. There's like one $200 copy on Amazon or a bad PDF or whatever. And I figured, uh, I basically just, I wanted the books for myself. So I started just reformatting them and now uh turned into a company and to republish out of print books and the i it took me a little bit to pick a name and i landed on lsr because of the lord of the rings character and object to like two things related lsr and lord of the rings is uh aragorn's royal name and it's that comes from this like elf stone that he wears and uh, that's given to him by Galadriel. And it's the name he takes when he becomes King of Gondor and Arnor and fulfills his destiny. And the whole kind of theme behind the the name Elisar, the actual, like the power of the object is, it's the idea of like old made new healing, uh, like, re, like renew, renewal. And that's also kind of the theme that you're left with, with uh, when Aragorn comes into his birthright and becomes king. And after defeating Sauron, there's like a whole idea of like renewal and uh, like healing Middle Earth. And so I thought it was like pretty, it was pretty on point uh, if you're trying to get like long lost books uh, back into print and kind of making, making what's old new again in, in yeah. a very beautiful way too. Yeah. So one of the things um, I will say uh, so most of the listeners and also the viewers on YouTube uh, know of the Lord of the Rings movies from, uh, you know, 20 years ago, 
uh, by Peter Jackson. Obviously, the series, The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King, I think they were published in the 50s, um, and then mm-hmm. put in paperback in the 60s and got like super popular that way. <clears throat> so there's a big gap there. But um, a lot of pe- I mean, most people know Aragorn, Elisar. I don't know if he, was he called Elisar in the film? Um, I know the the Elisar stone that he he wears in the book is changed. It's like not. It's a. It's called like the Even Star or something. It's something that Arwen gives him as like a gift. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. It, it's a different thing. It's they kind of yeah. got rid of the actual stone. I don't remember if at the end of the movies they yeah. call him Elisar. So, yeah, well, because at the end of the movies, there's also some Elvish and. We're not really following. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like he could have, you know, it could have been, um, you know, he would could have been called Elisar in the Elvish. We're not like following the language. So um, I, I want to ask you really quickly. I want to talk a little bit mm-hmm. about Tolkien. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about um, your perception of like how the movie character, which is, you know, Hugo Viggo Mortensen's character is Aragorn to most Americans mm-hmm. versus what you see in the books? Yeah. Um, I, I will admit, I, I saw the movies before, way before I read, read the books. So for mm-hmm. a while, like that was the Aragorn I knew. Um, and that's, uh, I have to blame my parents for that, though I can't be too mad about it. They literally showed me, I think it started when I, like my brother and I were like maybe like three years old, three or four years old, and asked what a knight was. And then my mom was like, well, I'll just show you. And so she puts on a battle scene and maybe it might have been Return of the King or Two Towers. Um, and it was like from that moment on, and then it starts getting like very bloody. My mom turns it off because we're four years old, and then we immediately start yelling at her to put it back on. And from then on, it was like the movies were what I knew, and just watched those on repeat growing up. And so I only read the books when I was kind of more like late teen years, I think. Mm-hmm. I, uh, mm-hmm. The Hobbit when I was younger, but like the books in late teen years, um, and the Aragorn the I think I think Peter Jackson is like actually stayed pretty true to the books, which was pretty impressive. But Aragorn in the books is much less reluctant to take his birthright. He's like very, he from the get go, he's like knows who he is. He knows what he's meant to do, and he is like this. He's a very confident leader that like fully accepts his destiny. He's going to become king of Gondor. He's going to reunite Arnor, and like that that is his mission. There's not really any. Uh, doubt or anything like that mm-hmm. from from him which is very different from the aragorn you get from the peter jackson movies where i, th- I think the the purpose they that they why they changed him was to add more of like a character arc to the story like give him maybe a little bit more relatability or something um but he seems more of like a loner unassuming figure when we meet him there's more self-doubt about his like destiny and his role uh, he like there's a moment when he's talking to Galadriel about uh about Arwen and he says something about how he would like rather see her go west with her the rest of her people and it's kind of this this moment of where he's expressing doubt about his ability to fulfill his quest in defeating Sauron because he wants to like get her safe and you don't really see that kind of doubt that happening in the books um where obviously there's a lot of struggles and like ups and downs in the journey but um there's like a lot of movements also in the movie where he is kind of reluctant to take his place as the heir of Isildur because uh he is it kind of expresses this 
uh, I guess like he, he basically says that he doesn't want to make the same mistakes as his ancestors where like some of the backstory mm-hmm. here is just that uh, he's his distant ancestors were Ellen Dill and then his son Isildur, which so I might be pronouncing completely wrong, but feel free to correct I mean, that's, me. There. That, that's what they say in the Rings of the Power. So, okay. <laughs> well, we know that's completely accurate. We're gonna, so. we're gonna get into that. We're gonna get into that. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. Um, and uh, El- there, Ellen Dill and his son Isildur fight Sauron like many, many generations ago. Uh, Ellen Dill gets killed by Sauron. He and Sauron breaks his sword. The sword later becomes Anduril, which is Aragorn's sword. But before that, Isildur takes up that sword, that broken sword, cuts off Sauron's finger, then cuts the ring off his, then also takes the ring um, from Sauron, thus like defeating him in that age. Uh, but when it actually comes down to it, Isildur is not able to cast the ring into the fire and destroy it. And then he becomes corrupted by the ring. And so you see like that mm-hmm. whole past haunting Aragorn more in the movies. Um, that doesn't really come up in the books. Yeah. Like, Aragorn knows, yeah. knows who he is in the books, um, which I think yeah. also is. But I also, I also want to hear like some of your takes on this. But I, I thought like the yeah, the whole... okay. yeah, oh, and I, I, I broadly I agree. Um, so I um, so it became a big thing. Actually, I was in sixth grade, mm-hmm. and a bunch of the guys uh, started reading. Um, these books that were, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fiction guy. Uh, most of the listeners and viewers will know that I really didn't start reading fiction until I was a teenager, but I really? made a few exceptions. Yeah. I'm just a nonfiction person. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm weird. Okay. I mean, I think people out there know that. I don't think it's a, like a big, <laughs> no judgment, no judgment, <laughs> a big, big revelation, um, you know, you know, kind of dead inside, you know, but, uh, but no, I did read the books. Um, and when the movies came out, I also thought, but you know, it was a big gap for me and mm-hmm. i was at you know like i was like 10 or whatever you know or 11 mm-hmm. uh and so it was uh, it was i was psychologically in a different state but i will say i do think um to me from what i remember a lot of the character depth and uh, psychological complexity that there was in the books is around the hobbits mm-hmm. in general um whereas everybody else um it's not like they didn't they weren't psychologically complex but they played their roles and I kind of, I guess if in hindsight, I, I didn't think about it this way at the time, they were more like stock characters. They were more mm-hmm. fulfilling their destiny, like Elisar, like Aragorn. Um, Gandalf is almost, I mean, Gandalf is kind of a real person, but Gandalf also, he can't die. You know, Gandalf is an express, he's a Maya. He's an expression of, of a force of nature almost. Sauron mm-hmm. is, I mean, he's the ultimate evil now that Morgoth, Melkor is gone, all of these things. So the hobbits in the books are the bourgeois are the english gentry you know which everyone knows you know Tolkien kind of based them on the english gentry so they're the relatable people which they're not totally relatable um because the relationship between uh uh frodo and samwise uh, has a class valence i feel Mm -hmm. that did not speak to late 20th century americans which is what i was and i think what you're alluding to about aragorn in the film lsr in the film and why he is um, a more complex, ambivalent character is Peter Jackson. Is he's a new guy from New Zealand? Uh, he is writing and uh, writing and directing 
this writing the script or not he's not writing the script i don't think he wrote the script but he was heavily involved and he directed and it's it's geared towards an american audience i think an american audience we are not naturally monarchists uh it's something that's (laughs) a little bit ingrained in us so if if there's going to be a king it better be a reluctant king so i think that's that's my take on what's going on there that's the way that you make him uh sympathetic because he didn't want to be king it was thrust upon him and he had to take the responsibility eventually. Mm-hmm. And that is the arc that we can relate to when it comes to a monarch. Um, whereas, you know, in other cultures or in the past, especially uh, it's not, the monarch is not reluctant. The monarch is just a part of life. It's a part of the world. Um, J.R. Tolkien grew up in South Africa, but you know, he lived most of his life in England Obviously, the British people have monarchs. It's just part of their existence as a nation. And you don't have to go through this, oh, like, I really don't want the power. Like, there's power. You have the power. That's your role in society. So that would be um, my take on that. <coughs> Excuse me. I think um, I'm going to say in terms of, like, the book publishing and the, these old ideas and stuff like that, um, in a way, it makes a little bit more sense of what Aragorn is in the books and what he represents because he represents a revival of something great that has fallen and a coming back to what it was. So I don't, and this is like a minor thing, but I feel that the critics who say filming in New Zealand (laughs) actually gave people the wrong view in a way of middle earth because it seems very vivid, alive, um, Mm. vibrant, Whereas actually the third age at that period, uh, you know, basically civilizations retreated mostly to Gondor, really. Uh, there's a few, a few of these, um, you know, Lothlorien, there's a few of these places that the elves are living. But really the world is pretty decayed and collapsed, like Numenor is gone, um, you know, our, the kingdom of Arnor is gone. And so it doesn't communicate that aspect. Um, so I think in terms of old books and reviving what was and making it what can be, I think it, it connects more to the books. And so I, that's, what, that's, that's why I wanted to ask you about LSR, because I think in a way, LSR, um, the differences are important when we're trying to understand tradition, learning, scholarship, and all these things. Because in the movies, he is a bit of an American trope of, you know, kind very of much so. Yeah. Reluctant King and all that stuff. And, you know, there's stuff that's like cut out. Um, he's actually, so Americans love every man. He's obviously mm-hmm. not an every man, but the movie de-emphasizes how much he is not an every man. Most people don't know the lore. And there's a scene in the movie where he talks about how old he is, um, you know, and that was deleted. So I think he's like over 100 years old in the movie because he's it's something he's like that, or like 80 or 90 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. He's a Dunedain. And mm-hmm. so that, Dunedain are descendants of the Numenorians, And, um, you know, they have they were given long life uh, by the Valar and, you know, uh, Ilvatar. Uh, I think it's actually the Valar to reward them in the first age. And so they're like almost a separate species. They're almost like mm-hmm. demigods. And I think Americans would be really uncomfortable with that. And there's things in Tolkien that, uh, you know, Americans in the modern age, um, just they don't like make any sense to us because we're not, you know, we're not early 20th century people. Tolkien's an early 20th century person. Mm-hmm. And that's his moralistic sense. 
And so I think it's a little difficult for us to understand. And we'll get to that with the Rings of Power later, because I think that that explains some of the problems. But um, mm -hmm. I want to, like, ask you, like, you're very young. Um, you know, we don't need to get into the exact age. Like, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't the whatever podcast. Yeah, this isn't the whatever podcast. I don't need to, like, ask, <laughs> you know, all the details about your personal life. But um, so how would you say, as because, I mean, you are a Zoomer, I'll say mm -hmm. that. How is how is Tolkien relevant to you guys? Because, you know, you live in this TikTok world uh, and <laughs> I mean, like these are books. These are very old books by a very old guy that I think he was I think he was born in the late 19th century, you know, but I mean, he it's fought in World War One. I'm World yeah, War II. Yeah, 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 yeah. World War One. So he's very. This is a very. This is. This is these are ancient works uh, mm -hmm. from the pre-internet days, pre-television days, even. And um, I, I'm kind of wondering how it's relevant to you. Uh, so I, I, just like by way of like kind of like setting the stage, you know, in the '60s, even though Tolkien himself was not a hippie, uh, it was you know taken up by the hippies, The Hobbit, um, and Fellowship of the Ring, and all these books because like The Shire and this kind of like pastoral um, setting. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was perce perceived to be anti-industrial, which I think he was actually. So um, I, think he, you know. I think he was too. But. Yeah, he was. I mean, he clearly was. No, so I'm not going to hit you away though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think like when I was a kid, I'll, I'll just like say, uh, you know, when I was a kid in the late 20th century, um, you know, a nuclear war was a thing that we always thought about. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you're thinking about Sauron and the dark evil, you know, I mean, you kind of thinking about the Soviet Union, but also you're thinking about like the spectrum of the mushroom cloud and just basically, basically like the end of everything. And mm -hmm. so when you're reading uh, stuff like that or you're watching films before about 1991, especially if you're young, um, I mean, really not everyone, pretty much everyone. I, I think that that was something that was there. And I think it's not quite there yeah. anymore. So your generation, obviously, um, you know, grew up in the wake of 9-11 and all that. I'm just wondering um, how you guys view this story and, mm. and how it, why it speaks to you. You, you encountered in your late teens. Like, what was it that, that really hooked you? Mm -hmm. um, okay, I'll start with the, the, good, the good interpretations of like how, how it's been like taken up, I think, by my generation um, or I think where, where it has appeal. Uh, I mean, for me, I, I mean, I was really young when I first encountered it. So I, I think I'll start with my, like, my reaction, just revisiting it just in the last week or so, uh, for this podcast is it was just like this really, really refreshingly hopeful story, um, that you like quite honestly, like never see in like modern media, like everything feels very, very bleak in a lot of like basically anything that gets put out in the recent years. Um, or at least like cynical, like I think cynical and bleak at worst, uh, at best there's, it's a little like wayward, nothing like there's not a strong foundation for the story or for the characters. There's no like higher ideal to be reached for. Um, and I think like Lord of the Rings is just the opposite of that, where there's this really clear, uh, clear divide between how you should act, how you shouldn't, like moral, like what is moral, what is not, uh, what is like good and true and beautiful and like what is evil. And um, you have all these characters who are kind of struggling with that in different ways and like trying to be good, but like not, you know, sometimes failing, sometimes not. Um, you have like the, 
I mean, Frodo's whole arc is basically about this whole like struggle against the temptation of the ring. Um, and like knowing, knowing what he has like a goal, he has a very clear goal and like, he knows what he should do. And that is like throw the ring to the fire, but there's just like increasingly overwhelming burden and temptation on him towards evil. Um, people of the ring. And that seems like very reflective of human nature to like varying degrees. And, or like you see like with Boromir too, where he's a good character um, who has good intentions. Like he wants to use the ring for, to like defeat Sauron and save his people and everything. But he uh, kind of fails in not realizing that he's using an evil instrument trying to do good, but just using that evil instrument is like in itself doing evil. It's like in, in how Tolkien's writing it and trying to take it from Frodo at the end of the fellowship is like a betrayal of him. But um, you see him like kind of realize that this, like recognize this betrayal and kind of seek repentance. And so all this to say is that like all these, all these kind of good characters trying to strive for like a higher ideal, strive for good, like in various ways uh, is very refreshing for someone who's like, you know, grown up just in the 21st century. And it feels like the world is very um, devoid of any, like anything to that, anything concretely good to strive for, which sounds kind of abstract, but Mm -hmm. this is like, you don't, I think there's like a kind of sense of like, like listlessness, like people feel lost, like in my generation, which is like why you see like mental illness, anxiety, depression is because there's like so much navel gazing going on because you don't have like any clear, like out outside force or standard or anything to strive for uh, or models to, to look up to, to like try and model your own life after. And I think Tolkien like provides that extremely well. Um, and I think also the, which I, I think this is something that most people reading it would maybe not, or like my age would maybe not like immediately hit on, but I think Tolkien's whole idea of like the eucatastrophe, which is kind of this, just to define it, it's like this massive like turn in fortune when there's like no hope at all uh, for victory, but victory still happens. But it's like brought about by kind of the grace of a higher power um, or like a just a very unexpected turn of events um, rather than purely human heroic effort and mm-hmm. that's kind of how lord of the rings ends with uh like frodo and Gollum's fight at mount doom where frodo ultimately fails and does not cast the ring to the fire because he's just like overwhelmed by the temptation of it um yeah. and then he and Gollum struggle for it and there it's like this whole uh it's like scenario that makes sense but like completely unforeseen yeah. moment where both of divine them divine providence yeah div- yeah divine providence where like both of them want like have kind of given into the evil and want it and then Gollum bites Frodo's finger off takes the ring and then dances himself into the fire and destroys the ring and yeah i think it's like that whole idea of divine providence also is like fair i think i think it's uh even if that's not what people would maybe touch on is like very appealing when uh mm-hmm. rather than having the kind of stress and anxiety of like feeling like every absolutely everything every choice you make is going to decide your fate and the fate of the world and uh like everything you do like matters like really deeply which it does it matters deeply and Tolkien thinks that but on a moral level not on like a 
like a you're deciding the fate of the world level. Yeah. Well, you know, some some of the uh, listeners and viewers, I mean, I'm sure they're thinking back. There's a scene where Frodo, I think it's Frodo, is mm-hmm. in the films. Um, I don't remember, frankly, like the exact details in the books, but Frodo is wondering, like, why don't they just kill Gollum? And Gandalf mm-hmm. says, you don't know his purpose. And so that's actually kind of, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's basically like now you know the purpose at the end. Right, that's the payoff. Okay, yeah. why is why is Gollum still around? Like, what's the point of this kind of wretched, wretched person being, uh, former Hobbit? Um, and well, it turns out that you know even Frodo at the end of the day was weak, uh, and he could not resist temptation. And ultimately, Gollum's uh, wretched like venality is in a way what ends up saving the world because you know. As you say, he takes the ring, dies, and uh, mm-hmm. the ring disappears, and you know you have salvation, right? So I think that that's a very interesting, you know, I think people sometimes um, they view Tolkien as, oh, it's like this simple good and evil narrative. Mm-hmm. But if it's you so look wrong. closely, yeah. yeah, okay. So I mean, elaborate that because I think if you look, it's 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 actually pretty complicated. Yeah, I, I agree. I I mean, I think if you just keep going back to like that last moment where the ring gets destroyed. It's like if it was a simple good and evil story, Frodo would just throw the like through his like sheer willpower, have like overcome evil, like good overcomes evil, he throws the ring to the fire, happy day. And uh that's not at all what happens because like the natures of good and evil are like more complicated than that. And um even though like Frodo I would still like call Frodo like the hero of the story, um the ending is like not defeats evil it's kind of like evil defeating like defeating itself uh through like that's like the great irony that like kind of ties the whole story together is that the mechanism that the ring uses to keep itself in existence there's like people's desire for it um is ultimately like what destroys it and i think that's like a but it, it also could not have gotten that to that point it could have not have been in the right position for it to be destroyed if not for Frodo carrying the burden throughout the whole trilogy and bringing it to that point. Um, so it's like this kind of very like, complicated interweaving of like the good people, uh, like the, the heroes, Frodo doing this heroic effort and resisting the ring. Um, and like Sam's loyalty to Frodo too. It's like, is getting him there. Uh, Frodo's mercy towards Gollum and not killing him is like what brings all three of them to that point where um, even though ultimately like the temptation of the ring overcomes Frodo, there's, it still gets destroyed. Like evil, the evil still destroys itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to me, um, you know, contrast this with uh, a song of ice and fire, Mm -hmm. which obviously is from, you know, George R. R. Martin like thought it up in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, and you know I actually like both series. Um, I encountered Song of Ice and Fire considerably mm-hmm. later, which was good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just just putting that out there. I'm just realizing like what would ten year old Razib have thought about this? <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> no, I was in my I was in my early 20s and that was okay. That's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I had never thought about that. I was like, yeah, like it's really good. The timing was really good. Yeah. But um, <laughs> you, you, so Martin ex- or Martin explicitly, you know, mm. and he's not religious. Tolkien is religious. They have like different worldviews. Mm. Um, and Martin, he wanted to create a world where there was more shades of gray. Um, and you know, there's there's a good. And a bad, and I'm not gonna talk about the mm-hmm. the, the TV series too much because like I don't, and we're probably not gonna he's probably not gonna finish it, you know. Uh, yeah, but not. you know, probably not. I mean, just to being honest here, I mean, I'm not trying to be mean, but you know, <laughs> yeah, we all <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's been <laughs> but, a um, long time. And... Well, I mean, what were you in in elementary school during the last? <laughs> no. uh, I mean, maybe not. Yes, but... I, I think maybe middle school, middle school. <laughs> okay, <laughs> maybe so like high school or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what i'm gonna do a quick sidebar and i'll get back to like because we have an outline of okay. stuff we want to talk about so in two in 2005 in early 2005 um uh a friend of mine uh was was saying uh, who i'd introduced the series to because i mm-hmm. introduced the first three books to him and he was like oh this is great i heard rumors on the internet the next book is is, is about to come out and you know it's been five years and i was like bro whatever like just like uh-huh. just keep on waiting like you'll have kids yeah. by the time the next book but it turned out that the next book came out uh feast for crows and then was it dance of mm-hmm. dragons in 2011 so there's then you have to wait six years and um you know mm-hmm. but i and he was just like whoa like six years you know because he was messaging me he's like i remember and then i got mm-hmm. it and now, now six years not looking so bad you know <laughs> i mean sure what is it like 10 12 i think they're going on now yeah 2000 it was like spring of 2011 oh uh, really last yes yes it was spring i didn't realize I it was, it was that spring. long ago <laughs> yeah okay. it's 12 years it's yeah. 12 years it's gonna be like 13 years soon and then he yeah. has another book supposedly after that <laughs> But okay, okay. there's I, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to post a link to it on the show notes because it's not appropriate. But there's like some funny comedy sketches of what what he's really doing instead of <laughs> writing the book. Like he's I jumping on trampolines, you know. He's doing like fantasy football. <laughs> I mean, it's, at this point, it's kind of entertaining. Um, yeah, how long some people are still waiting? Because I kind of gave up. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, if I was yeah. him, you have like a. Uh, now not it's that like many years. two successful yeah. shows. I was gonna say. I was gonna yeah. say you have other things that are like more top of the list, things. like two. Successful he has a lot shows. of things. He has a lot of things. Yeah. And who knows what else? But yeah, I he, mean, he, you, you don't even it, need to at this rate. I think um, it's a little bit like declaring Gmail bankruptcy or something. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you what just you have mean? to do it and be like, uh, so it's like you have too many emails. Mm. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. As, your, as your career gets more advanced, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> But uh, I'm just going to be honest. That's going to happen. So you have too many emails and you're like, oh, I'm going to respond. I'm going to respond. And then eventually uh, Gmail starts reminding you, you have like all these things you haven't responded to. Mm-hmm. And people are just like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to like mark them all as red or delete them all. And I just like email me again. I'm just declaring bankruptcy. Okay. So Martin yeah. should just be like, look, I'm de- declaring a song of ice and fire bankruptcy. I'm not going to finish it, okay? I got other stuff going on. I'm going to be around for another 10, 20 years, and I want to enjoy my life. I'm super rich. Like, yeah. I have, like, a wolf, a wolf, like, you know, refuge and all that stuff. There's a lot of stuff going on, so I don't, like, I'm not hating. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, though. When I was in my 20s, I'll say, Nicola, uh, when I was in my 20s, you know, I'd read some fantasy in my teens. You know, obviously, Tolkien was a little earlier, but... Uh, I, I I really did enjoy um, a song of ice and fire because it was like ooh it's like 
dark and uh you know there's like evil stuff happening and like i mean have you read those books um i re- i can't say i remember them that well but i read i watched the whole series i watched house of the dragon i have read the first two and a half books but yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah, I so I, I mean, the long. books the books are nastier than the TV series. Yeah, yeah, I remember that I mean, much. Yeah, I'm just like I'm like, bro, like this is like sh- shit's dark, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, now I have to say, I kind of I'm like over it. I think you just go through phases in your life, and yeah. you know, like maybe like I was a cynical twenty something. And now I'm just like, you know what? There's enough like negativity and cynicism and shades of gray in the world. I don't think I want to read that sort of stuff too much anymore. If Martin publishes mm-hmm. a book, I will probably read it. I'm not like honestly 100% sure, but I probably will. But um, it's just I'm just pointing out here like in terms of Tolkien versus Grimdark and some of these new genres of sub, you know, new genres. Mm-hmm. And there's there's swings that go back and forth. And it's a little bit like um you know superman versus batman i'm not a, i'm not a comic books person but you know superman is you know kind of like like apparently superman is popular uh during times of of crime and chaos cuz you want this like omnipotent person whereas batman is you know it's kind of almost a luxury belief as as rob henderson would say cuz mm-hmm. gotham is like you know dark and this is we want this a like, complicated character who's actually not a superhero but just a regular person who runs around in a bat suit and the thing is like the whole thing is like a little ridiculous right so they have they have different um mm-hmm. like different flavors that i think are appropriate at different times so i want to mm-hmm. um i want to move on like ask kind of like you know some people will think this is like a little bit of a weird question but i want to mm-hmm. ask just throw this out there um so Tolkien said, um, so most of the people out there know that Tolkien was a very devout Roman Catholic. Uh, he was very, um, very disappointed that C.S. Lewis didn't become a Catholic, actually. He was excited that C.S. Lewis yes. became a Christian, but he was very disappointed that C.S. Lewis did not become a Catholic, a uh, Roman Catholic. And he said that, um, you know, his work is uh, fundamentally uh, religious and Catholic, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision um, I was just interested in this because, like, you know, neither of us mm-hmm. are Catholics. You are Christian, but mm-hmm. you're not a Catholic. I wonder what you what you think of it, because I think a lot of people have opinions about these sorts of things. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious, like, what, how much it matters, what the author thinks and what the, you know, and this is like a question for literary analysis and postmodernism. But um, have you thought about it? Like, you're not Catholic, but you mm-hmm. love the books. Like, I mean, how do you feel about that? Um, I mean, I think. At least like how I read them, and I think. Well, okay. I think the themes, the Catholic themes in them are more Christian than Catholic. They're more like across the board. Um, Cause it's all, I mean, like I, there's like a whole, the quote from Tolkien that I like about this is, uh, well, I'll just read. It says in the Lord of the Rings, the conflict is not basically about freedom, though that is naturally involved. It is about God and his role, his sole right to divine honor. Sauron desired to be a God King and was held to be this by his servants. If he had been victorious, he would have demanded divine honor from all rational creatures and absolute temporal power over the whole world. Which, like, that summary, that could have been written by a Protestant, a Catholic, any Christian. And yeah. I think that theme carries throughout the whole, like, which I also want to talk about, like, the whole... I'm curious what you think, but I the message, the overall message for me in this, these books is choosing hope over despair, no matter the situation. Um... And that's also very Christian over Catholic, um, or it's yeah. it's both. It's not like it's, it's a, Catholic. It, 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 you're saying it's a superset. 
in yeah. terms of it's a very it's a very very broad it's a broader message. Um, mm-hmm. I just wanted to know what you think because I know you're a serious Christian. Yeah. So I uh, well, presumably you'd given a little thought to this. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think the I mean I think the strength also in the work is that it's not overtly religious. It's like there's it's clearly written by Tolkien, who's a Catholic, and who and is imbuing it with these like very religious Christian Catholic themes. Um, but these are all themes that are like very universal. And um, I think it's like the the strength that he brings to the work because of because of his religiosity is like I, yeah. I think it's this whole like concrete moral foundation um, that is absent, like I said earlier, like from a lot of other works that are written now, where he has yeah. this a, a, there are clear ideals that are that should be aspired to, um, and things that. And like things that people should not do, um, yeah. and ways people should not act. And having that template, I think, is very. Uh, it, it just speaks to people regardless of religion, and it's also not the story is not an allegory at all. I think he he was very clear about that. He does not like allegories. Um, like there's the characters are not religious themselves. They're not like praying or worshiping anything like that. Um, and that means that like basically anybody who's religious or not can pick up the book and like have these like the characters and the story and the themes like really speak to them without feeling there's some valence uh, or like veil between them um, because they're mm-hmm. not religious. Um, okay. And I think like part of the, I mean, like I think one of the biggest part of it is that is like the always choosing, like always choosing hope rather than giving into despair, which like, I think the, one of my favorite, like, two story arcs in the in the series is Theoden's and Eowyn's two story arcs, which to me like are very it's all kind of all about them starting at like a point of despair about uh like the world and their and Rohan and everything. Um and ending in a place of like hope and renewal. And Yeah. Yeah. I I I have I can go on this tangent for as long as you want, but I also no. I also want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I pretty much agree with you. So I'm not, as you probably know, I'm not religious mm-hmm. at all. But um, but I I do think um, I don't see the thing that's specifically Catholic about it. I mean, you know, in mm-hmm. fact, uh, I didn't like drop the word, but it was almost like um, you know, what happened between uh, uh, Frodo and Gollum at the end was almost predestined. So that's obviously not you know Catholic. So yeah, but that, you know, I'm just like you can. Was- you, yeah. The the part that was like felt like less Catholic to me, where it felt like things were more, yeah, there was there was more a predestination point to the story. Yeah, which like <laughs> yeah, and just for the listeners, like obviously I don't want to like you know we, we're not going to get into a theological uh, discussion here, but um you know there is a strain of Catholicism starting with Saint Augustine that is kind of predestination oriented, but in general in modern Western Christianity uh, that has been the forte of Calvinism. And which is obviously not Catholic, uh, mm-hmm. and so uh, to me, I I do think that Tolkien is an Englishman um, of you know the the last name like paternal lineage is actually I think Han- from Hanover. I think it was during the the Hanover mm-hmm. phase in the 18th century. There were Germans that came over. You know, he has a generic Protestant background, even though he converted to Catholicism, um, or his mother converted to Catholicism and then raised him as a Catholic. Right. So um, I think that that's just an interesting thing to point out. I think this is this is true in the United States. A lot of Catholics, even serious Catholics, still have Protestant presuppositions 
I'm dropping the word presupposition in there for some of you who know what I'm talking about there. But, uh, you know, so this is I think this is important to understand the cultural background of someone um, in terms of universal themes. I do think that that's a, that's a real thing. There is um, I don't know if it's postmodern, but there is a, a tendency to engage in subversion and inversion in some contemporary narratives. And, uh, you know, some stories just end with the bad guy winning or they're super bittersweet. And, you know, it kind of leaves a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth. And sometimes it's OK because it's like, oh, OK, that's a thing. But sometimes, um, you know, you want a good meal, you know, that's well balanced, well composed mm-hmm. and looks nice. And I think Tolkien's storytelling is part of that broader tradition. It appeals to common universal human sensibilities, ideas of justice, honor, uh, fair play. And I think that that's definitely um, there. Now, there are specific, I believe you're right, there are specific Christian themes in there in terms of the emphasis on certain types of redemption. Um, Also, just like, you know, his cosmogony, which is outlined more in the Silmarillion, is obviously... Yeah, that's much more explicitly... It's, you know, Ilvatar is Mm -hmm. obviously kind of like God. Uh, The Maiar, Valar, you could say like angels or something. but also another thing I have to say is uh, a lot of people out there, they know this. Uh, Tolkien, uh, Tolkien is a Beowulf scholar. Uh, he was one of the preeminent experts, uh, you know, um, experts on Beowulf. And Beowulf, uh, that the story, I think it was written down in like the 8th century. I think that's the current estimate. There's arguments about this, okay? Uh, <clears throat> somewhere in the 8th century to maybe early 10th century. But really, I think uh, the older dates are probably more correct. Uh, obviously, it was written by a Christian uh, because they talk about Cain and other things. There's there's Christian assumptions in the novel, or not in the novel in the in the in the story. But the story has a lot of uh, you know pagan uh, pagan Scandinavian influences, Germanic influences, and actually uh, Rothgar the king probably was a historical king uh, that lived in the early sixth century in Denmark. So um, so that so it's it's right before the Viking Age proper. I think they call it the Wendel Age in Sweden. So there's a lot of this that he wanted to pour into uh, the stories. One thing that I will say, though, is um, some people have said one of the reasons there is no religion in the world that he created is because obviously this is a world before Christ. So it's by definition a pre-Christian world. Um, there's pretty strong um, indications in some of his writings that he viewed this as you know, the world of the past, actually, like this is like, you know, Middle Earth, um, you know, Gondor, this area is obviously, you know, it's around Europe. Um, the Shire is whatever. So, okay. Like setting mm-hmm. that aside. So these are, these are pagans. These are righteous pagans, but uh, you know, he knows a lot about pagan Scandinavia, the pagan Germanic world. And uh, some of those ethics and values are very, very different uh, from what the audience uh, in 20th century west would know and the the values that he would himself espouse um and so i mean if if you guys um watched northmen uh which is based on uh, you know a real like uh, legend from scandinavia and they have morals they have an ethos but it's very different than the christian ethos in terms of their sense of honor and duty and fate and if you had put that in you know because Lord of the Rings, you know, this world is uh, mythology for English-speaking peoples, but if it had been uh, like Scandinavian uh, mythology, it would also be like kind of hard to relate to and, uh, you know, in some ways kind of unpleasant. Um, and, you know, the, the, the moral, the morality would not, I think, have, have made as much sense. So I think, um, I think, you know, in terms of like that question, I agree with you. 
uh, broadly. Mm-hmm. Uh, might disagree on little details here and there, but I think um, why did he say that it was Catholic fundamentally? I don't know. But I mean, he was a believer. He was very sincere. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, to each to each their own. Like, that is what he believed as the author. And yet we as readers, we can take something different from it. When I first read it, in fact, you know, when I first read it and even when I watched the the film, I mean, it, to me, it didn't seem super religious. It just seemed American in a way. Like, it was like I could relate to it as an American in a lot of ways. So I think it's hard to know when Christianity ends and Western culture begins and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Now, that's changing a little bit. That's changing a little bit, as a lot of people know. Yeah, but but um, I, I think that, I that's thought, part of it. I, I totally agree. I think the that seemed like t- the Lord of the Rings to me, like the more I was like thinking about this question, seems like this like somewhat perfect like meeting place between like western western culture like classical western culture and um and christian western culture where he like clearly really uh he's like up to or respected like the like anglo-saxons like the like kind of pagan cultures and wants to keep some of their virtues like honor and um courage and like yada yada like that you see in rohan and uh but like kind of give them this christian more christian ending or valence like you see with like theoden or aeon's story story arcs which um like with theoden he kind of like embodies this at first like this fear of death and despair against insurmountable odds and tries to retreat his like his people into Helm's Deep, even though like Gandalf urges him to fight his enemies head on, and this kind of uh, retreat, reluctance to face death and battle, is against like these the the virtues of his ancestors, but also like the virtues of the kind of pagan cultures that Tolkien is basing mm-hmm. the, like him off of, and yeah. he kind of like starts his getting back to uh back to these virtues when he rides out in Helm's Deep but he's like still I think I think a different author maybe would have like ended his story arc there where he's like okay decides to ride out mm-hmm. in Helm's Deep like face the Urukai um and faces doom with courage and then like yeah. en- like gets killed off all right he's had a glorious battle death but that's like not where Tolkien ends it a different, lives, I, yeah Ma- yeah he would have died in Martin's books he would yeah died. exactly exactly um, that but that idiot would have died. Yeah, yeah. But for Tolkien, this is like the start of his kind of like moral victory um, in the books, yeah. where he's like now overcome his fear of death, um, but in like a sort of like suicidal way. Um, and then he like yeah. really achieves this like moral victory, which is this this half of it is way more Christian um, when he yeah. answers Gondor's call for aid and goes out to fight on Pelennor Fields because it's the right thing to do, and. Um, that just like that participation in the battle kind of completes his arc. And then he, he has his like glorious battle death then uh, and has like these wonderful like final words where he says, my body is broken. I go to my father's and even in their mighty company, I shall not now be ashamed. I felt the black serpent. Yeah. And it's like, now this is like the perfect kind of, yeah. The first half is maybe the pagan completion of the arc. And the second half is the Christian completion of the arc. Yeah. Although, although what he's saying, you know, with his father is, I mean, that's, Kind of understanding sounds like Valhalla to me. Yeah, that, that um, so that's I, the role of pagan. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, because Ro, the Ro, the Rohan people are clearly based on on kind of like Scandinavians, Germanic mm-hmm. people. I, one thing I, I will say is, as you're talking, I'm thinking about this, 
and in a way, it's almost like um, it, Tolkien wrote. Um, he wrote uh, Fellowship of the Ring, and you know, you know these books, this world. It's what if you are a devout Christian, and you write about these pagan people, right? So you kind of mm-hmm. like recreate them in your image with your ethos, right? Mm-hmm. Well, um, as, as, as you were saying that, that's what I'm thinking, and I, people have said that. Uh, we do the same thing. Uh, so if you watch the TV show Vikings, mm-hmm. which like some people have watched. I've, uh, I've watched, not the whole thing, but I've watched it. Yeah, but I mean, there's like, you know, there's like racial diversity in the Vikings. And there's women uh-huh. that, I mean, that like really small women that are defeating very large men in battle. <laughs> Yeah, it makes sense. Um, there's, totally. <laughs> there's bisexuality and poly, mm-hmm. and it's all, you know, I don't know, accepted, but it's kind of accepted. It, it, look, this is basically progressive Hollywood uh, with their morals, whatever you agree or not. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, the morals of like tolerance, like self actualization, sexual liberation. And they're putting it among pagan Vikings, Scandinavians. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And they were not like that in a lot of ways, like in a lot of ways, you know, believe it or not, there was not a black Viking. Um, also, like lesbian queens are not a thing among the Vikings, you know, no, et cetera, really. et cetera. You know, I, I'm like, just going to be the, the memory of everybody, like any average person watching the show. This is what they're going to think Vikings are like now. Well, OK, so that, this is this is an interesting point that you're bringing up. So um, what I was what I was thinking, though, is. um like these tv shows right so like viking culture and religion like it's espoused by like very different people that have very different takes so uh you have you know the asatruer uh not all of them are white nationalists but a lot of them are and you know the odinists who are explicit white nationalists so it's actually a big deal in the the far white right you know uh to okay. be news to me viking yeah yeah oh you didn't know that no i didn't know that okay Okay, well, it is. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so in like uh, actually, um, for people who want to look it up, uh, Google the order. Um, they committed a bunch of hate crimes in the early 1980s, and uh, they were an Odinic cult as well. Like they worshipped Odin together. But in any case, um, so that that's the the, the um, you know you guys can like find the citations after that. I've read a little bit about it. I, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, okay? So that's my excuse. Because <laughs> it's a thing there. Um, okay, so, yeah. so And they're very, very far right, obviously, uh-huh. right? Um, but then you have other people that want to turn the Vikings into, well, you know, before Christianity, um, women were equal to men, and, you know, people were, uh-huh. like, sexually liberated, and all this stuff. Uh, and, you know... They they're also like you know there's evidence of of like non-white people in Scandinavia there are but not that many you know but you can like you know like I know the DNA there are there's some evidence but because like people did travel in the ancient world believe it or not right oh wow, crazy that's, that's crazy good, idea you know so I I find it interesting that you know we're talking about Tolkien like as where we started in terms of how people perceive it and how they interpret it and what they take from it even though you can't make it totally plastic right mm-hmm. but with the Vikings for example. Uh, and which does Viking culture, Scandinavian culture, pagan culture, uh, Germanic culture, Anglo-Saxon, you know, pagan culture uh, does influence Lord of the Rings and Fellowship of the Ring, even though it's highly Christianized and it's made more, you know, it's much more palatable to like 20th century liberal and like liberal in the broad sense, uh, you know, English country gentlemen, right? <laughs> uh, but you, today we have the Vikings and we have these TV shows and they're depicted as very woke, aside from uh, the slavery and the rape 
parts. But you know, yeah, just besides again, that, they were very progressive. No, Don't worry but, about it. But the issue is that you can't be like totally elastic. Like everyone knows mm-hmm. that the Vikings were about raping and slaving, so mm-hmm. they have to include that. But they still make them somehow more progressive, and so you have arguments. Usually, you know, the Vikings are used um, as kind of like props in arguments, like oh well, before Christianity. You know, women had freedom and they were equal and all this stuff. It's actually not true. It's different. There, there was differences, mm-hmm. but we need to get into that. And then you have these, um, these people like white nationalists, you know, and they're basically uh, just just for the listener and the viewer out there. So the logic that happened was, you know, so Christian identity is a movement that comes out of British Israelism, which is has been the traditional white nationalist religion, and it basically argues that white Anglo-Saxons are actually the descendants of the ancient Hebrews. Modern Jews are descended from, uh, like, Satan or Lilith, you know, but they're a different species, and non-whites are animals, okay? So this is, like, obviously, like, you know, post-Christian heresy. Okay, but the problem is it's still Christian, and so, you know, these, like, far-right radicals are, like, it's still a Jewish religion. And so they're like, okay, what's the alternative? Well, some of them just decide, like, okay, like, well, what did our ancestors believe, right? And so they reconstruct um, a sense of what their ancestors believed. But the reality is uh, we don't actually know a lot about Germanic religion. Uh, we know about the Prozata, and we know what Snorri Sturluson wanted us to know. But, you know, he was a Christian from 13th century Iceland. And so he had his own particular agenda and his particular biases. And we don't know a lot about the ritual. So they're reconstructing things. Um, and so, you know, we started the podcast and we spent a lot of time talking about fantasy. Um, and okay, like that seems kind of like an obscure nerdy thing, even though it's become a much bigger cultural thing, thanks to Game of Thrones and HBO. But the reality is, um, you know, we reconstruct and we create kind of like worlds of our own imagining all the time. We don't call it fantasy. We call it reconstruction or creative anachronism or fiction or whatever. But I mean, it's all like human creativity and our cultures and what we bring to it, you know? Um, So that like, is I think a good segue, I want to talk about rings of Mm -hmm. power with you because I know you have opinions. Um, (laughs) I'm not a big fan. I know you're not a big fan. I mean, I'm sure like I'm going to get unsubscribes from like the two people who listen to me who are big fans, you know, and I'm sure there are. people. Does this show have big fans? fans? That's That's a genuine question. I mean, there are people who, um, yeah, no, they're probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I don't think anyone's really a fan. I don't think anyone who says good things about that show. I don't think people who say good things about that show really like fantasy. That's what I'm gonna say. Mm. They might say good things about the yeah. show, but it's not because they like fantasy. Because they don't really like fantasy. They just like seeing their politics on the on the screen. So, I mean, you go. Like, I, I mean, I've been talking. I want you, I want you mm-hmm. to express your opinions because I know you have opinions on this. Okay. I will preface this by saying I haven't really watched it. I have watched have clips. I've read about it. I tried watching, like really watching it, and it was not good. So, that's that's I can't go too in-depth about, like, the ins and outs of the plot and everything. Um, but it's there's no real a, plot. But yeah, not that there is a plot. Narr- I think like, narrator. There's no real plot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the the I guess where to start with this. Well, like, on a very surface level, it just looks really bad. Like it looks sure the CGI like it was probably like good on some parts, but like it looks generic. Like there's not a like an actual design for this world or the show. Whereas like you look at the Peter Jackson movies. And you can like take any screen cap from it and like not really know that much about or like not be like super into Lord of the Rings and recognize that as like this is Lord of the Rings, this is Middle Earth. 
just because of the costume design and like the set and everything like that is very distinct. Um, and that's not really the case for Rings of Power, where like you probably could just take a screen cap of Rings of Power, take a screen cap of any like Netflix fantasy generic show, put them side by side, ask someone like if they're from the same show, someone that person will probably say yes. Like there's nothing like particularly special about it. Um, and then like as far as the characters and story goes, uh, I mean, this kind of just goes back to like what I was like talking about earlier, where there's like not just doesn't seem like there's an actual foundation to this world or the story or like what is the like the whole point of Tolkien is like this higher ideal that you're striving towards and like fighting like fighting for the good and it's not clear that there's like anything any like a real moral in this uh or Mm -hmm. themes or anything like that in this show other than just like now Gladriel is like a super cool elf who everything she does is right and she can beat up the bad guy and she's always going to win and be correct. Um, which is also just a side note, a complete contrast to how Tolkien wrote Eowyn as like the female warrior type character where mm-hmm. her whole arc is about like her trying to go into battle as like a shield maiden was like an act of despair and like literally like a suit, like a death wish. Um, and like her arc mm-hmm. and she does like go into battle, she, like sneaks out and kills the witch king with Mary. Um, but Tolkien does not like use her success there as like a justification or like vindication of her choice to like reject her, her proper role, um, which isn't, it's not even like a gender politics thing either. It's like her, like kind of her whole arc is like it ends with her choosing like life over death um, and choosing to live and like rebuild and like she ends up marrying Faramir and it's like a very like hopeful ending where she chooses to be like a grower of things and like rebuilding the world um, instead of like choosing this like glory like martial glory um, like death and battle type of ideal that she was going for um, which is not anywhere in like in the rings of power or gladriel uh like there's there's not even like a thought past this like one-dimensional strong female character um yeah Yeah. i think those are that's basically sums it up for me so i guess what you're talking about is i think like the mary sue aspect uh Mm -hmm. where she can do no wrong etc etc so relating to our earlier conversation though of what we were talking about so what's motivating her in the series is the death of her brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's the vengeance aspect. And ironically, that's actually true to pagan Scandinavian culture, mm-hmm. where vengeance is extremely important um, and blood feuds were a big deal. Uh, they're not big into forgiveness, uh, like no. Christians, obviously. And so, um, you know, inadvertently, they did stumble upon something that was real But then, like, it was kind of like a weird pastiche where um, also there's, like, you know, quote, progressive, modern elements combined with pre-Christian elements. And everything was kind of, like, mixed together in, um, you know, I think you you, you made a good point in terms of it looked – it looked like any like yes they put a lot of money into it and you know when you're looking at like the polygon count they had a big polygon count you know like on a video game or something mm-hmm. it was a very very high res uh it was lush um it gave the right sensory input to you but just because 
you know, it works, the math of it works, doesn't mean that it actually captured the spirit of the world of Tolkien. Frankly, I don't know what it captured the spirit of in any unique, distinctive sense, Mm -hmm. because I think the generic aspect that you're pointing to was a real thing. And it just shows, I I suspect, that... um, So Bezos wanted something to, you know, rival Game of Thrones. Like, you know, and this is like... You know, let it be so, you know, like in Star Trek, the next generation, like just execute on it. Right. You know, they had like a bunch of money and they brought in these people and they, they have a lot these people supposedly have talent and they have money. But what do they lack? They lack passion, you know, mm-hmm. and it shows it shows because um, at the end of the day, if nobody involved really cares, no one's going to put their foot down, you know. And sure. I think that's what happened. I think I think this is like lowest common denominator narrative uh, mm-hmm. that that you saw. I mean, do you know anybody uh, who watched it? Uh, I actually do. Like, not. I think it's like a friend of a friend type of thing. Um, and I remember talking about it, and the the reaction was like, yeah, like I was like, oh yeah, it was, it was kind of enjoyable to watch, and they did some cool tricks and. Like, oh yeah, like Gladriel's like super badass, but like it wasn't anything uh I we argued a little bit about it, but like it was it was not like anything I think that was sticking with with him. I think it was just mm-hmm. like all right, we were kind of passively watching watching this over dinner and it like it worked as far as that and you know, that's that's about it. Yeah, um, it's not meant to, it didn't re- leave an imprint. It wasn't memorable. Yeah. I mean, there are pe- there are people who re- who remember watching the Peter Jackson films and it really impacted mm-hmm. them. You know, or yeah, like I remember the f- I was tiny, like four years old, and I remember the first time I saw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and so and that that's not going to happen with this. No, it's too generic. I think I think your 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 um your point in this generic is, is true. So I want to I want to mm-hmm. pivot um back to the books, okay. the LSR books, um, and you know rare books and all of this stuff. You know, you're not the only person that does this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been a lot of books, you know, I read somewhere that like 99% of Victorian fiction, like we don't even have any copies of, like not only are they out of print, you can't find copies because the mm-hmm. books just got destroyed or just decayed, but you see, but they know that those books existed because there are references to those books in other books, uh, just, you know, in terms of commentaries or bibliographies and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Okay. So obviously there's a lot of books disappearing, there's a lot of ideas disappearing, a lot of sentences disappearing. Um, is that a bad thing? Um, like, shouldn't like the only stuff that gets reproduced be the good? You know, I, I'm I'm asking you questions here in terms of what's motivating you and if you think there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I I, mean, I usually pick the the books that I want to reprint based off like personal interest and I think like historical value. Where I, I'm not like a I, I'm not very egalitarian about it. Where I think just any book that has ever been written and has gone out of print should be reprinted. Like I, I think there's obviously books that have more value than others. Um, like, and, and I think part of the motivating factor here was that the ones that I have on my list were very shocking that they went out of print. Like there's one that's like, uh, it's called the mind of Napoleon. It's like a selection of his write, written and spoken words out of print, like very hard to find a copy. And this is just like a collection of like Napoleon's writings and speeches. And that is like one of the biggest figures in Western history and type of figure that is worth uh, like learning from, if like not looking up to in many ways. Um, 
and understanding like historically or philosophically how what have you and so it's like was rather shocking that like something like that would go out of print from such like a famous figure um it's kind of same thing uh one that is has kind of been on the docket is called the open mind and it's like a collection of lectures that oppenheimer gave uh in the maybe 10 years after the bomb dropped which again extremely significant figure very significant event like that like like you're talking about earlier like it's the nu- like nuclear warfare and nuclear bombs like hung over the world throughout the 20th century and still still do in practical sense now we just don't think about them as often um no and so it's it's just like things like this where there's clearly like a lot of richness that has been lost and uh that shouldn't be lost and i and i've also had like many conversations with with my brother actually about about this because he was like the kind of person who has always been very entrepreneurial but like hates being lectured at and i uh, kind of thought like a lot of his life that he just wasn't into school wasn't into learning until he got a little older and then started reading like biographies of napoleon or alexander the great and all this kind of stuff and he would like come to me being like why was this not the kind of thing that you're that we're reading in yeah. school like why am i not learning about any of this why did I not know any of this because then you're because now you're you're kind of picking for figures that are actually more aspirational like which i guess is quite like how tolkien writes is having like this higher ideal like someone who's like actually aspirational um who's like can do like make great things happen where like in even in, in tolkien it's like the hobbits and frodo are very humble creatures but still have the potential for great deeds um not so much with maybe a caesar or a alexander but same same idea um and I've just been like wanting to bring bring these kind of things more back in, more into the mainstream because it seems like these are these are all low hanging fruit, but we've str- like strayed so far from like real education that even the low yeah. there's this low hanging fruit is has not been picked. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I get it because you know i think some people are going to be wondering like well why why do you have to do it you have a lot of stuff going on in your life and you're young the issue is like if everyone has that attitude it will never happen mm-hmm. there's always going to be somebody who has to do it uh you know and so you know in, in the startup world you know you often get asked like why you well why not you why not me you know i mean mm-hmm. you, i mean you give you give explanations oh timing you know we have like this set of like skills and talent you know but someone's going to succeed someone's going to do what needs to be done or it's not going to get done um so i i I do think that that's an important thing to consider um Mm -hmm. and you know there are a lot of ancient works that we don't have but that are alluded to a lot of histories a lot of plays but um you know some of these things that we have are only due to one copy for the people out there um are listening and, and viewing just remember that especially like when it comes to the greek stuff you had you had three major choke points uh you had the byzantines in the 10th century constantine porphogenitus uh you had the carlonian empire you know under charlemagne in the 9th century where he funded like a massive massive binge of copying and then you had uh, obviously uh, harun al-rashid uh and uh i think al-amin like in the early 9th century in the in baghdad 
Um, but the three are actually quite different. So, for example, uh, not quite different, but they're somewhat different. So, for example, we wouldn't have any of the Greek plays if it wasn't for the Byzantines because that's their culture. Um, they are Greek-speaking, even if they identify as Romans, and they actually copied those. Muslims, for example, did not care about Greek plays. They did not care about Greek humanities. All they cared about was philosophy. So uh, I think that's interesting to note that you know we owe our understanding of the past, of the minds of the past, and the thoughts of the past, to just a few instances. Now today, you know, you can do copy, uh, you can email, you can do this or that. Um, I'm not gonna lie; I read a lot of eBooks, I read a lot of PDFs, but uh, eBooks eBooks can be yanked; uh, they can be re-edited. Um, I do think the decentralization of uh, books in physical material in medium is is actually going to be a thing that we're going to value. I have I have friends who uh, talk about buying physical books mostly because. They're worried about the revisions, and some of you guys out there know that they're revising James Bond to make it more. Oh, I didn't hear about the correct. James Bond one. Yeah, I've heard about many Ian, others, Ian, but not yeah. So Ian one. Fleming, they're redoing Ian Fleming. Um, they're re-editing it, and hmm. uh, it's uh, it's pretty weird. A lot of it is pretty weird. Um, and you know, are you a better writer than Ian Fleming? Like, do you capture James Bond? I mean, I don't know, but I mean, they they're changing it. And, you know, the, the people are not going to know. Um, another thing that actually just came out in the L.A. Review of Books, um, it's kind of related, uh, Martin Heidegger's work, uh, and uh, you guys probably know Heidegger from being in time, super influential, also kind of a Nazi. Um, and uh, that's obviously kind of a problem because he's super influential and he's a Nazi. Um, being both of the, being them separately is okay. But in uh, modern culture, being a Nazi and being influential is not okay. And so the way that they square the circle is after World War II, uh, basically there's um, – well, I mean he died I think in the 60s or early 70s. But um, recently his son and his executors have been editing the writing selectively, even mistranslating things. Uh, really? So, yes, yes. So they, they – um, yeah, they miss they 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 mistranslated acronyms to like remove national socialism and stuff and weird stuff. Huh. Now I'm only bringing the, I'm bringing this up partly, and I tweeted it out today. Um, I'm bringing this up because you know I had to go philosophy class with like a professor who was like a Heidegger stan, and I kind of went through a, a rabbit hole for a little while, and I was like, you know, he's a Nazi, so why is like he cool? I don't. Like, you know, you know me, like, I'm not like pro-Nazi, but, you know, there are evil mm -hmm. people that have good thoughts or interesting thoughts. So I'm not, I wasn't necessarily mm -hmm. opposed. But from everything I saw, Nazis are expelled from public life. And, like, some people out there are going to be like, oh, well, he left the Nazi party, blah, blah, blah. I mean, come on. Like, you know, he wasn't he wasn't Spengler who was, like, anti-Nazi. Like, he was definitely mm -hmm. sympathetic. You know, so there's stuff like he talks about how, you know, his son is like, you know, he wasn't anti-Semitic. He just had concerns about world Jewry. So, <laughs> it's a literal quote, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's minor concerns. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's like not that know? deep. <laughs> you know. So, um, but I'm, I'm pointing this out because um, it's not actually uh, the world that we know. We see it, you know. We see, you know, through the mirror darkly, um, and mm -hmm. you know, we are being manipulated sometimes in some ways, you know, and. Um, it's important that you uh, do what you do. I think. Uh, I think that this is like, this is a rationale. So, when you ask about reading, um, Antonio mm -hmm. Garcia Martinez, uh, the uh, the tech guy, whatever he 
he's saying like we're we're entering the age of orality because uh, Zoomers don't read. Um, it's like the visual medium and like audio and you know people are talking about ChatGPT means that like you know you don't have to like write things down in any structure. You just like make a query. Um, so I, you know, I, I told Antonio, I was like, it sounds like the age of retardation to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can say it. This is my podcast. I can use the R word. Uh, so don't try to cancel me. Uh, but you know, I like, but I'm old, I'm old, mm-hmm. but, um, I, I suspect that we're on the same page, but like, I want to hear like a young person's voice on this. Cause, cause you have yeah. lived like your whole life has been on the, inter- the internet age, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's partly true. Like I. It's partly true because I, I think a lot of people, like people my age that I know, um, or like my age range or whatever, um, tend to go for like we'll go for audiobooks, podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I this seem just it just seems like a little short lived, I guess. Like I guess what I mean by that is there's if you're say if you're listening to an audiobook you're kind of passively absorbing the information um, and like not really, it's very different from reading. Like you kind of zone out if you're reading, can't really space out or you're like lose, like lose what's going in the thread. You're going to stop reading. Um, And I think it works up to a point uh, where you can kind of just grab nuggets from things and that's fine. I like. I think we'll probably do some like audio books with like some of the LSR books that are coming out. Um, but I don't know. It's just it. It's this. It just seems like more of like a a tendency towards being pa- like passively consuming uh, rather than like actively learning. And that seems like there's a very like there's kind of just like a general pushback against that. Like it seems like people are a lot more like recently concerned about education, which is like a whole other sphere of things. But like since COVID people just have been like trying to find alternative ways for uh, to like just educate young kids. Um, and I think part of that honestly is like, there's obviously a place for technology and that's great. But part of that I think is like choosing, choosing to, to be an active reader, active learner rather than just like passive listener. Um, so I think I think it'll go as long as it can, kind of like when you're like in a class where you can just skate by, um, and then. But if you like end up in a hard class, or at some point the teacher gets strict, or you have to like actually do something, do something more concrete, then it, it's gonna have to shift a little bit. Yeah. So I mean, in terms of reading, I I, I want to make a reference to a book. Um, you know, I know for you Zoomers out there, it's like this is like, you know, structured in chapter. No, just joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's a book called Warriors of the Cloisters of Central Asian Origins of Science yeah. in the Medieval World. And it's a, it's a it's by Christopher Beckwith. He's a Tibetanologist. I'm only bringing this book up because um, he makes the argument that um, the recursive argument method, uh, he makes the argument, but basically um, like the disputed questions uh, that you started seeing in the medieval world. Um, he makes the argument that it comes from medieval Central Asian Buddhism that was absorbed into Islam and then it was spread into Western Europe. Now, the point here from from my perspective is this is really dependent on a written medium that's very structured and you can see the coherent, like, you know, the, you know, you know, you know, when you read Summa, 
you know, and then like some of these other works, they're like subdivided in ways uh, that allow you to kind of engage point by point and respond point by point. And then it's kind of like an iterative process. Whereas, um, you know, a lot of oral debates, uh, you know, even if you, I mean, I did debate, debates about winning. Yeah. Um, A lot of the writing, it ends up to be about learning i think i mean mm-hmm. i'm trying to i'm exaggerating here but you know what i'm saying yeah yeah um i mean so i think like, this is why like, books are important because it kind of it pulls out the personal personality and like the personal aspect because when you're engaging in an oral conversation with people i think it's just natural you get invested in your arguments obviously you know on twitter people get invested in their arguments too so whatever i'm not i don't want to exaggerate but i do mm-hmm. think the written medium detaches us from our argument and puts it um, in this structured format. And also, you know, I talk differently than I write. Um, you know, people routinely say that when they meet me, but I'm like, who, I mean, who Isn't writes everybody? the way they talk? Yeah. I mean, this is, so it's a different way of thinking. It's a different mm-hmm. way of, of structuring your arguments. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that uh, we might be yeah. losing something there. I, I think it's actually a, a very good point. Something I, I've had to learn kind of relearn, I guess, uh, over the last year or so is I think there's way, way too, I didn't realize this, that this was generally true until I realized it myself, that there's like way too much leeway for abstraction now, just in general of like how people think, talk, learn, work, whatever. Um, and there's that. And if you're just like too abstract with like, I don't know, your ideas, what you want, um, your goals in life, like how you like think through think through problems, whatever, you're not really getting anywhere. Um, you're not achieving anything. You're like it's very hard to like have to actually move forward towards anything, um, or know where you're moving towards. And I think writing, I think you're right. Like writing is very good about like you have to actually concretize things when you write it down on a page. Um like I, I've even talked about this with my friends in like more of a silly way where you uh like you maybe get in your head too much about like a problem or like get emotional or something. And then you start like just writing it down and realize you're being completely, like your logic makes no sense. Like what your, like your thoughts about the problem are like not making sense. Um, but you can kind of justify yourself in your own head. Um, and even sometimes when you're talking uh, to like to someone else, but if you have to like look at your own words on the page, like separate from you uh, and realize objectively this makes no sense this is the wrong way to go about yeah. it then that's i think that's very important and powerful and there's too much like there's not enough push towards that i, I would say the art of speaking the art of speaking the art of dialogue verbally um, mm-hmm. orally is by necessity to some extent an art of rhetoric uh, mm-hmm. even if you're not technically doing rhetoric uh, i think that this is the, how it works out uh, obviously, you can do the same thing in writing. There's polemical writing. There's op-eds and stuff like that. But it's not all that. Like you, some of it is like quote dry, which basically means like the humanity has been leached out of it, and it's like you know concepts that are kind of independent from you as a person. So I, I do worry about um, reading and the lack of reading. Um, you know, people have you know in my generation, people like lied about what they read, but at least they actually bothered to lie. Mm-hmm. you know yeah like people now, don't do that anymore no, they're like, like no. waving around uh you know like trashy romances from the drugstore <laughs> that's about it yeah so i mean this kind of um you know this is i, I don't want to end on a dark note as we're closing on our conversation mm-hmm. or like a sad note but you know uh this is one of the reasons i asked you 
why LSR because, um, you know, uh, we're rich, uh, you know, we're wealthy, we have supercomputers in our pockets, but uh, there is um, there's something in the spirit of modern man um, mm-hmm. that you know, and you you mentioned it. There's an ennui. There's an ennui. There's like a lack of direction, a listlessness, despite our affluence. Uh, there's something missing. Um, I think the shift away from text, I think that's going to accelerate that, honestly, because when you when you um, read a translation, because I mean, I can't speak, coin, you know, I can't read Greek, uh, read translation of Homer uh, that speaks to you. It's a different alien culture, but it speaks to you. Uh, you know, if you're Christian or not a Christian, you read the Bible that speaks to you. Um, mm-hmm. Can you imagine people just chattering each other over TikTok? And that's what their input is? Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to imagine it. You don't need to imagine it. I, you don't you know? need I to. Know, I, I know you're not like that. And I don't want to be like the crotchety old guy that's like, you know, kids today. But It's okay. Um, it's kind of true. Um, it's, but it's, I, I can end this on a high it. note. So feel free to be as negative as you want. <laughs> all right. All right. So, I, no, you know what? Like, I have kids. Um, I want to I wanna think I want to think that, that, that there is hope. Uh, so, like, uh, like, like. You know, close it out. Like, tell me, Nicole. Okay, I'll. I, my my high note to end on, which is what like part of the motivating factor for LSR, both like the, the book publisher and the Substack, which is Substack's more for like short form works. Um, it's just like when you actually look back at real history or like in real like writings that people that from the past uh, and how people actually thought, you realize that the the negative side is that you realize you've kind of been lied to about like what how people how people actually were in the past, what they thought, how backwards it was, which it, it was way less so than we think. Um, and that that's the negative side, but the positive side is that I think you kind of just realize like how, how I guess like the heights that humanity actually can go and how we don't really need to remake the wheel, that there's just, that there's like a huge wealth of, knowledge intellect uh philosophy spirit that is like just waiting to be drawn on um and it's there we just kind of need to need to go for it and yeah that that's that's been kind of a very inspirational point for me i mean yeah i mean two words it's there yeah you know it's there so um you know i think whatever happens uh going forward uh, maybe it's not predestined. We have a choice, you know. <laughs> a little bit of both. You don't, you know. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, I think we've been talking for long enough. Uh, it was great talking to you, Nicole. Um, everyone should check out the websites. I'll put the links out there, and um, I will see you around. Yeah, see you around. Thanks so much for having me. This podcast for kids.